1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for downloading Episode 9 of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. If you're a first-time listener to Murder Mile, This is part two of The Brutal Death of Ginger Ray, so I would strongly advise that you listen to episode eight first. For everyone else, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. In today's episode, we shall re-examine the myths, motives, suspects and theories surrounding the horrific murder of Ginger Ray. A kind-faced and sweet-natured Soho prostitute, whose death, almost 70 years on, remains a mystery. Murder Mile contains vivid descriptions, which may not be suitable for those of a sensitive disposition, as well as photos, videos and maps, which accompany this series, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 9 Who killed Ginger Ray? Today, I'm not in Soho. Ooh. Instead, I'm at the National Archives in Kew, one of Britain's largest repositories of public records, which contains everything from maps, wills, and military plans, to the Doomsday Book, and even declassified government secrets. It's an impressively ugly six-storey mishmash of concrete, steel and glass, surrounded by two pools, a fountain, and with a long metal walkway leading from its wrought iron gates to a huge glass atrium, making it look like a cross between a futuristic prison and an extravagantly posh swan sanctuary. Security here is tight. Upon entry, your bag is checked by an unflinching guard. You're ushered to a transparent locker where your personal effects are decanted into a transparent bag. Your pre-approved ID is scanned. A second surly guard, your see-through sack, deprives you of any liquids, snacks, hat or jacket. Before your ID is checked again, you're ushered to a numbered box where your pre-ordered files await. And you then sit in a predetermined seat, in stony silence, as the library guards patrol, watching, waiting, and ready to pounce on any dirty bertie who dares to dog ear any page. But it's worth it. As for those who love true crime, this is Murder Nirvana. In front of me sits the original police files pertaining to the murder investigation of Rachel Annie Fenwick, alias Ginger Ray. It's a tatty, brown, loose-leafed folder, which is easily six inches deep, held together with a pale green cord, and is chock-full of witness statements, autopsy reports, lab results, and internal police memos, some of which are typed or neatly written, but most are scribbled in an illegible scrawl. And yet, inside this file lies a few new clues which may help unravel the mystery of who killed Ginger Ray. So let's re-examine the basic facts. On Saturday, the 28th of September, 1948, in her second-floor flat at 46 Broadwick Street, 41-year-old Rachel Annie Fenwick, alias Ginger Ray, A veteran sex worker with 84 convictions was brutally stabbed to death. In a short but violent attack, Ray sustained six deep stab wounds to her torso, defensive lacerations to her left hand made using a 7-inch stiletto blade and a strangulation bruise across her windpipe. She was discovered by Ted, one of her informal boyfriends. She was slumped on the floor at the base of the bed, semi-clad, and partially covered in an eiderdown, down Whether she'd been posed is uncertain. Whether this was a robbery is debatable. No sexual violence had taken place, and the time of her death was recorded between 11pm and 3am. Unusually, she failed to meet two male friends, Steed and Dutton, at 10pm in a local pub. And although we can account for her whereabouts until just after 11pm, the last known sighting of Ray alive was between 11.15pm and 11.25pm by three fellow prostitutes who saw Ray talking to a Maltese man and their description of him is truly remarkable. And yet, no one saw her killer. No one heard her die. And the knife has never been found. But what's more perplexing is not who killed Ginger Ray, but why kill Ginger Ray. Ray was a sweet-natured woman with a big heart and a beaming smile. She was a widower with close family ties, three devoted men friends and no enemies. And although she'd been a prostitute for 23 years, she actually embraced the lifestyle it gave her. And unlike many women in her situation, she had no drug issues, no drink problem, and no debts. Why she was killed is a mystery. So based on the evidence, what can we deduce about the attack? Well, oddly, it's the details that the police report doesn't mention that gives us more of an insight into Ray's last moments. with no reference to any furniture being disturbed except the blood-stained eiderdown which was used to partially obscure her body the attack must have been located on or around her bed with no reference to bloodstains on the mattress she must have been attacked and died on the floor with no reference to any injuries to her back she must have been facing her attacker when he struck As no knife was found, the killer must have taken it with him. With no key found in her purse, and with both doors locked, the killer must have locked up and taken the key too. And with Ray being a seasoned sex worker who knew how to handle herself, she must have been caught off guard. As no sex had taken place, and she was semi-clad, wearing just her stockings, a slip, and a brassiere, her killer must have struck when Ray was undressing, and at her most vulnerable. As the attack was short but violent, and yet nobody heard a thing, the killer's initial attack must have been to silence her, by forcing his thumb across her windpipe, stopping her breathing and screaming. As if she had been stabbed, surely she would have screamed. And with no blood on the mattress, no injuries to her back, and no bruises to the back of her neck, Ray must have been pinned to the floor as she was strangled, with the attacker trapping her legs by using his full body weight before he stabbed her six times. And yet, the murder of Ginger Ray doesn't seem like a spontaneous attack, it seems cold, calculated. And callous. He clearly knew when, where and how to attack, choosing to strike not on the street but in her flat, in private and behind a locked door. So was she specifically targeted? That is unknown. Was he a punter? That is unknown. Did she know her attacker? That is unknown. And although, on the 14th of December 1948, barely two months later, the murder investigation was closed and labelled unsolved, with the official line being that Ray was murdered by persons unknown. The saving grace of this case is that, with Ray being so beloved, more than 20 sex workers in and around Brewer Street witnessed a wealth of possible suspects, including the Maltese man. At roughly 11.20pm, Thomasina Ingram, Alice Nolan and Rebecca Howland witnessed Ray politely chatting with a man in his mid-thirties. He was six foot tall, well-built, with a dark complexion and dark brushback hair. He was clean-shaven, with a Roman nose, thick lips, and had uneven and unclean teeth. He was wearing a well-cut dark brown suit, a white shirt, tan shoes, and was carrying a light tan raincoat. And based on the way that he kept looking at Rebecca Howland's mouth, she guessed that he was possibly lip-reading, and that his accent was either Spanish, Greek, or Maltese. And yet, as excellent as this description is, this man was never identified and never questioned. But who is he? Was he one of Ray's gentleman callers, who all supposedly had alibis? Ted, born Edwin George Peggs, a British born, 41 year old, 5 foot 10 inch tall, well built man was sighted in Hoxton, five miles away, on the night of the murder. And having discovered her body at 1 pm the next day, prior to his pre arranged chicken dinner with Ray, his grief and shock was obvious. So, no, Ted's alibi holds up, and his description doesn't match. Even Antonio Ayanu, The 28-year-old chef who'd recently split up with Ray, owned stiletto-style knives, had a vague alibi, and was Greek, the other nationality Rebecca Howland said the Maltese man may have been. He cooperated fully with the police, having met Ray just two days prior on good terms, and his chef knives and clothes were examined by the police laboratory, and no blood was found. In fact, including Steed and Dutton, none of Ray's men friends had any reason to kill her. None were seen with her, and if they were, the many prostitutes were in Ray's social circle and knew Ted, Iannu, Steed and Dutton would have mentioned it in their witness statements. But they didn't. But what if Ray had another man? a new man to lavish her affections on. Hidden in a brown envelope, inside the murder file, was a news article from the Today newspaper, dated the 28th of April, 1962, and written by Betty Sinclair, a close friend of Ray's, who witnessed her bloody body. Betty Sinclair wrote, The bedroom was like a battleground. Chairs and a table were overturned in a struggle to stay alive. The other room was in complete contrast. The table was laid, the cloth spotless, and not a speck of dust to be seen. Two places had been laid. Chicken, wine and candles were on the table, and she had taken a lot of trouble to please someone, and she had been repaid with murder.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: So who was this man? Was he the reason that Ray failed to turn up to her 10pm date in the Sun and 13 Cantons pub with Steed and Dutton? And why had Ray prepared the chicken she had bought for her regular Sunday lunch date with Ted. Was he the Maltese man? Or is this just bullshit? There's one vital element that's missing in Ray's case file, which any investigation into the murder of a sex worker should contain. As if Ray was a prostitute, then who was her pimp? as it's rare to find an independent prostitute who's worked for so long in the same area, who hasn't been coerced, conned, strong-armed, or even threatened into needing protection. With many prostitutes being beaten, bloodied, and even killed by their own pimps, and even rival pimps, for stepping out of line. Obviously, no written record exists of who Ray's pimp was, But the most prominent pimps in Soho from the mid-1930s to the late-1940s were the Messina brothers. Born to a Sicilian father and a Maltese mother, Salvatore, Carmelo, Alfredo, Eugenio and Attilio Messina were five brothers born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt and Valletta, Malta who ran a chain of brothels in both countries before all five brothers decided to expand their illegal operations in England as of July 1933. Having only semi-legally entered the UK and being self-financed, tax-dodging and independently wealthy, the Messinas began buying up West End businesses in Mayfair, Holborn, and Soho, setting up protection and prostitution records, all under the noses of the Metropolitan Police, having bribed key members, which gave them free reign of the city. So powerful were the Messina's, that Attilio Messina was arrogantly quoted in the press as saying, We Messina's are more powerful than the British government. We do as we like. By the late 1940s, during the height of their power, and the year that Ray was murdered, the Messina brothers were operating at least 30 brothels in the West End, with hundreds of prostitutes under their protection, some having been trafficked from overseas and others being local girls, lured in by the promise of clothes, money and even marriage to a wealthy Mediterranean businessman before being bullied into prostitution, and all under the threat of being carved up. So could Attilio Messina, or either of the Messina brothers, be the Maltese man? He certainly fits the description. Being 38 years old, 5 foot 10, well built, with a Mediterranean complexion, a Roman nose, clean shaven, with a taste for expensive suits, and they were all of Maltese descent. But whether any of the Messina's had bad teeth or were deaf, that we shall never know. And yet, if any of the Messina brothers were the infamous Maltese man, surely every prostitute in Soho could easily recognize such a prominent pimp, who ruled Soho since the mid-1930s. Or maybe they were just too terrified to go to the police to testify against him or even mention his name. But then again, by the late 1940s, the Messina's weren't the only Maltese gangsters in Soho. Having muscled in on the Messina's territory, Carmelo Vassallo and his criminal cohorts Paul Borg, Anthony Mannion, Michael Sultana and Romeo Saliba were arrested having tailed Eugenio Messina's Rolls-Royce to his Kensington home, equipped with a hammer, a kosh and a knuckle duster. During the trial, three prostitutes, Janine Gilson, Martha Watts, and Blanche Costacchi all testified against the Vassallo gang. Exposing their prostitution and protection racket, which led to Vassallo's gang being found guilty on the 23rd of April 1947 and sentenced to short custodial sentences. And yet, when Vassallo's lawyer cross examined the ladies, fearing they had been paid to fabricate their testimony, all three women, who were experienced Soho sex workers, denied having ever heard of the Messina brothers. So was Carmelo Vassallo the Maltese man? That is unknown. Was the murder of Ginger Ray caused by a rift between Vassallo's gang and the Messina's? That is unknown. Was Carmelo Vassallo the new gentleman caller who Ginger Ray was meeting that night over a delightful chicken dinner? having ditched her date with Steed and Dutton? No, that I can safely say as a fact, as Betty Sinclair's article in the Today newspaper was bullshit. And here's why. 1. Sinclair states, The room was like a battleground. Chairs and a table were overturned in her struggle to stay alive none of which was corroborated by Ted who found her body, her neighbours who lived upstairs, and even the police report itself. 2. Sinclair states, Two places had been laid. Chicken, wine and candles were on the table. And yet, Ted clearly stated he saw the uncooked chicken and the unwashed salad in the kitchen basin. And 3. Sinclair claims to have witnessed the murder scene of her good friend. And yet, not once in any witness statement is Betty Sinclair ever mentioned, except in this sordid tabloid news article published on the 28th of April 1962, 14 years after the death of Ginger Ray. Sadly, like most murder cases, the more infamous they become the more they are peppered with false leads and outright lies. And this murder is no exception. For example, on the 8th of November, 1950, Catherine Martin stated to the police, A Chinaman named J.T. Sang-Foon took Johnny Piera to a prostitute on Broadwick Street, about the same time that Ginger Ray was murdered. I want you to know what a depraved man Pierre is, and he might have done it. Only to top off her statement, with the line, He is a black man. On the 8th of July, 1949, William Connors, an inmate at Broadmoor Asylum, stated he'd received a letter claiming his brother had killed Ginger Ray in 1942. A full six years before she was even murdered. And again, in August 1962, having read Betty Sinclair's bullshit article, George Hobson of Birmingham, 118 miles away, claimed that in East London, one week before the murder, his friend loaned a knife, which doesn't match the stiletto blade, to a short, scrawny youth who doesn't match any description of any man that Ray was seen with that night. This particular piece of witness testimony takes up almost a fifth of Ray's case file, as well as 10 additional years of police work. What's undeniable is that during this era, with crime endemic and rival gangs vying for control, violent attacks and even the murder of West End prostitutes, supposedly by their pimps, had become a regular occurrence including Margaret Cook on the 10th of November, 1946, just one street away in Carnaby Street, Doris Violet Green, alias Black Rita, on the 8th of September, 1947, and Helen Friedman, alias Russian Dora, on the 5th of September, 1948, in an uncannily similar attack to Ginger Ray, who was murdered just three weeks later. And yet, all of these cases remain unsolved. Given how well loved Ginger Ray was, both the police and those who knew her felt her murder was less likely to be a personal attack and more likely to be at the hands of a maniac. And even though she was a tough cookie, who had scratched previous attackers in the face with her keys, Marking them with easily identifiable scars. A madman had clearly got the better of her. But who? Who was this maniac? Well, let me wrap up this case by telling you two very different stories. On the 24th of July, 1948, eight weeks before Ray's murder, Soho prostitute Hermione Hinden met a man on Brewer Street and took him back to her flat, just two streets from Ray's flat, for the purposes of sex. He was mid-thirties, 5 or 10, well-built, brown hair, wearing a dark suit and a raincoat. He was clean-shaven and had uneven and unclean teeth. As she stood by her bed, and started to undress her attacker grabbed her by the throat and pulled from his jacket a long bladed knife having wrestled herself free she screamed for the police the man's mood changed and he fled supposedly shouting I have no time for you bloody people I'm going to do all prostitutes in oddly on the same night that Ray was killed, in a street just off Brewer Street, this same man also tried to strangle Thomasina Ingram. And although his description was circulated, he was never caught. Then, on Sunday, the 26th of September, 1948, At 1.30am, during the critical four-hour window, when Ginger Ray died, 39-year-old Geoffrey Alexander Haig was found staggering in Piccadilly Circus, barely a three-minute walk from Ginger Ray's flat, in a drunk, angry and agitated state. His bloodied face scarred with four cuts, Haig then took a cab back to his Kilburn flat with a local prostitute named Anne Lancaster. And in her words, he proceeded to maul her. The next day, when questioned by Detective Sergeant Billiard, the first officer on the scene at Ray's murder, Haig claimed to have no memory of the previous night, no idea how he got there and no idea what happened how he got the scratches on his face, how he ended up in bed with a prostitute, or how he got someone else's blood on his blue woolen suit, and then blamed the entire incident on having run a a four-and-a-half-mile race that day and having not eaten. All of which could be a coincidence. Jeffrey Alexander Haig was a civil servant who was knighted by the Queen in the 1946 Honours List, and was made an OBE. On the bottom of many of the witness statements given by the common prostitutes as they were titled, who had provided such an excellent description of the men who Ray was with in her final few hours, the police had written that they were all liars and unreliable. And yet... On Haig's own testimony Detective Sergeant Billiard wrote Mr Haig is a man of substance an excellent character before Haig was released without charge Ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile but don't worry this is not the end of Ginger Ray's story, as over the coming weeks I shall be investigating some other murders mentioned in this story, which I hope will shine a light on this tragic case. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like it and also share it with your friends. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is Alfredo Zamparelli and the Golden Goose. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.